0: Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Fussman. Many people write to me wondering what they need to do in order to follow their passions and change their lives. Sometimes it's simply about being open to the possibilities that are right in front of you. My guest this week proves it out. Stephen Reichland, author of The Barbecue Bible. Brothers and sisters, we're upon Fourth of July, and what better time to be thinking about barbecue? Now, Stephen didn't grow up with the nickname Bubba, and he had no idea he'd devote his life to the grill when he went off to study in college. In fact, he thought he might be a college professor. Now he sold more than five million books on the many facets of barbecue, all told, His instructions and recipes have probably made hundreds of millions of people happy. I know that from personal experience, because I'm one of them, and I go way back with them. About 20 years ago, I wrote a column for Esquire magazine called The Perfect Man. The idea was for me to go to experts in all the fields a man should know about and have these experts show me how to master them. Only reason we called the column The Perfect Man was because I had so many flaws to correct. So I learned how to walk from a Victoria's Secret model to talk from the iconic boxing announcer Michael Buffer to shave from Ralph Lauren's barber. You get the idea. This went on for months, and the one thing every man and woman should know how to do is barbecue. So I went to Stephen Reichlin. By that point, he'd written the Barbecue Bible. It's thicker than War and Peace, has recipes from around the world. Stephen would also go on to put together an even thicker book called How to Grill. Well, Stephen invited me to his backyard and in a single day taught me how to grill and smoke. I practiced and practiced and months later got a spot in the Jack Daniels World Barbecue Championships. Soon I found myself walking on the grounds in Lynchburg, Tennessee, the sacred grounds past huge smokers and signs that read, Bad Brian's Butt Rub, and So Good You'll Think You Died and Went to Texas. Let me tell you something, I was up to the challenge. I smoked ribs, created an apricot horseradish barbecue sauce, and roasted apples with cinnamon that got Clive Kussler, the author, and a judge at the event to say, this is better than sex. So I figured it would be time to take a break from revving up my new business, helping companies tell their authentic stories by getting together with Stephen and talking barbecue. This conversation happened a few months back, He was just on the verge of producing a new book that's out now called Brisket Chronicles or The Brisket Chronicles. I suggest everybody go to StephenReichland.com and look at all the possibilities. That's S-T-E-V-E-N-R-A-I-C-H-L-E-N.com. The man has traveled around the world, half historian, half chef, got his own TV show called Project Smoke, just listening to him makes you want to go out and fire up the grill. So enjoy the episode, enjoy the 4th of July, enjoy your own meals, and I hope you'll enjoy it in a Sportique comfy tee. In fact, the first batch of Big Questions t-shirts arrives from Sportique soon. I'm so happy about it. I'll post photos on Instagram at Cal Bussman. The t-shirts are for my storytelling workshops, like the one I'm given in Munich, Germany on July 5th and 6th. For more info on that, go to kokrea.com. That's C-O-K-R-E-A dot com. And if you want to lift a beer with me in Munich, come on down. I hope it's a beautiful time to celebrate for you and that the sun is shining on you wherever you go. So let's go straight to Stephen Reichlin and barbecue. My old pal, it's so great to be with you. And I got a book in between us, The Brisket Chronicles, your latest of Many, many books about barbecue. At the top of the book, calls you the Julia Child of Barbecue. You've sold more than 5 million books on barbecue.
1: I have. Pretty amazing, huh?
0: You've spoken in the Smithsonian Institute, Mm -hmm. at Harvard,
1: and probably
0: your greatest accomplishment is teaching me (laughs) how to be (laughs) an expert barbecuer because before I met you, I
1: couldn't do nothing. Oh, my gosh. I remember that. You came to our house. uh, We got a smoker. We smoked ribs. We smoked brisket. And then in true perfect man style, you went and uh, proved yourself at the Jack Daniels barbecue competition in Tennessee. And I'll never forget
0: Clive Cussler, the author. He Mm -hmm. sold
1: millions. A lot, and millions a, lot, of books. a lot more than my <laughs> yeah, like barbecue books. That's for million sure.
0: books. He was one of the judges. Yeah. And you had also taught me how to barbecue the apples mm-hmm. for dessert. And he tasted that barbecued apple with the cinnamon inside it. And he his comment was this is better than sex. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all because of you, brother. Well, wow, that's great. So You've sold more than 5 million books. And that that must mean that like anybody who is tangentially touched by barbecue either has read your book or seen your TV shows. And what I'm wondering, what I'm really curious about is what it's like to have your life dedicated to one subject that you become a master in and you spread all of your knowledge. But I'm really curious about this because you've devoted like an entire life to barbecue. Did you have any idea that this was going to happen when you were young?
1: I had absolutely no idea. I have a degree in French literature (laughs) I figured I would become a college professor, and then, and it's funny because my father thinks this was the beginning of the end, Uh, but uh, when I graduated from college, I I won a Thomas J. Watson Foundation Fellowship. Tom Watson founded IBM. I mean, my dad worked for IBM for 28 okay, years. Okay, so, so you we know. were connected even before we were connected. Okay. Absolutely. So I had proposed, and the beauty of these Watson fellowships is um, that they can't be academic. You know, I can't say I'm going off to Oxford to, you know, study medieval literature. Uh, so I had proposed to study medieval cooking in Europe. Why medieval cooking? I wrote my thesis in college on a medieval French poet. I was kind of into all things uh, Middle Ages. And when I was researching the poet, who turned out to be Europe's first feminist, but being a clueless 20-year-old, that message completely went over my head, Uh, I found a medieval cookbook in the stacks at Reed College Library. And I thought, medieval cookbook? I mean, that's amazing. People were handwriting recipes and cookbooks 600 years ago. That's amazing. So uh, I proposed to study medieval cooking in Europe uh, I won the uh, I won the fellowship. Got me eating and drinking my way through Europe. Uh, hold it, hold it. Yeah. So you can apply for a
0: fellowship on some obscure topic, which they want you to look into. Absolutely. And they'll give you money yes. to just basically go over Europe and drink and eat and be festive.
1: Well, to give you an example, in my year, let's see, another winner went to study batik in Indonesia. What third. is batik? Batik is that fabric where you drip wax on it and then you dye it and you make uh, beautiful patterns and then you boil it in hot water and the wax melts out. So you get sort of interesting patterns. Like uh, all
0: those colorful, yeah. the very colorful fabrics. Like the it. saris, right, well, right, not right. a sari,
1: right. but what do they call the the wraps the, um, that uh, women wear to the beach and such. So another person my year went to study ato- atonal music in India. Somebody, So you
0: really got to come up with something off the wall here.
1: Well, the idea is... Uh, because I later served on the for the Watson Foundation. I have Selection. no idea this. I yeah. know you all these years. Go ahead. So um, we, because I say we, because I did help select uh, Watson uh, uh, fellows for uh, several years. But we're looking for someone that burns with a passion, and then that understands has enough kind of street smarts and worldly wideness to make it happen. So for example So anybody can apply for this. No, you have to uh, go uh, to uh, you, you, <laughs> okay. you have to go to one at the time it was one of thirty-five colleges and I think now it's one of seventy colleges. But they tend to be good liberal arts colleges, but not Ivy League colleges. But at any rate, you know, I was writing my thesis on a medieval French poet. All of my jobs in college were food related. I was impassioned by food. So it kind of fit. And I, you know, I brought a copy of this medieval cookbook. So obviously, I kind of, I had a battle plan. I had a passion, and I think they're still scratching their heads that they gave somebody seven thousand bucks to eat and drink their uh, way through Europe, which back in nineteen seventy-five was a lot of money. How long did you do it for? So the normal fellowship year lasts one year. I did it for two years, uh, and then I wound up. I studied. See, the oh, way. Whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah, so they give you seven thousand dollars. Yeah. yeah.
0: Uh, to go around Europe eating, drinking, and being merry.
1: Well, not only that, but, you know, I studied medieval cookery manuscripts in all the great libraries in Europe, the Bodleian, the Bibliotheque Nationale, and uh, so that was kind of a piece of it. There was an academic piece, actually, looking at these manuscripts. Oh, so you
0: have to do some work.
1: Uh, yeah, definitely. I did a lot of work. Okay. And then at one point... Pr- I was
0: just getting the eating and
1: drinking and being merry. Yeah, well, that, that, was, a, that was part of it. And then <laughs> another piece of it... See, if you looked at a medieval recipe... And by the way, you know when you see a pharmacy and you see the symbols Rx? Right. Okay. Well, that comes from the Latin word requipe meaning to take, and most medieval recipes, whether they were for food or for medicine, began, take some of this, take some of that, take some of the other, put it together in the <laughs> See customary See what you learn fashion. on this podcast. There okay? you go. And you know what?
0: You're proving yourself to be the college professor that you always wanted to be.
1: Well, at any rate, so I'm reading, thank you, I'm reading about, you know, uh, taking some mugwort, which was a popular medieval ingredient, taking some cinnamon, cardamom, mace, uh, saffron, because medieval food was very heavily spiced, put it together in the customary fashion. Well, I didn't know what the customary fashion was. Sounds like Harry Potter stuff. Yeah. So I figured I need to go to cooking school and learn, you know, kind of learn learn (laughs) the grammar and learn the, you know, the vocabulary of cooking. So I enrolled in the Cordon Bleu in Paris and then at a new school that had opened called La Varenne. And there I learned, you know, basically the principles. If, if. To me, cooking is like a language, you need vocabulary, you need a grammar. So that's what I learned in modern cooking school. And then armed with that, I was able to go back to these medieval recipes and sort of figure out how the stuff did go together.
0: So you were cooking like 600 years ago.
1: Yeah, so that was a piece of it. How did it taste? A lot of it was really delicious. A very few dishes survived to the modern day. Like there was a spiced wine called Hippocras. uh, Never heard of it. But well, you know, it's what we would know as hot mold wine, basically. So that has survived. Uh, There was something called a Blanc Mange, which was uh, basically an almond pudding. Um, That has survived. Uh, But there's, you know, some very interesting things. I mean, a lot of medieval uh, food was sort of chopped up mashed up, reformed, mixed with spices, reformed into other foods. And I think probably that artifice had to do as much with uh, the dentistry of the period as it did you know, with um, what you tasted. You know, People ate soft food because a lot of people didn't have teeth in the Middle Ages. Pudding. Um, pudding, <laughs> right? Which we call boudin in French, yeah. uh, budino in Italian, but um, the puddings were very popular in the Middle Ages. Anyhow... So all of this is a very long uh, prelude to barbecue because I got into barbecue very much by accident. I'd been a food writer my whole life and that was kind of what I wanted to be. And after I came back from Paris, year in Paris, two years, year in Paris after the Watson year where I worked for one of the cooking schools, Slaverin, came back and I became the restaurant critic for Boston Magazine. And I think my first year of freelance writing, I made $4,000, second year maybe $5,000. But... Funny, those were the only two years of my life when I had everything I wanted. I mean, I. And plus, you're eating good. And I was eating well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, fast forward. So I r- You know back- what? Just stop here. Yeah. Because
0: what is it like to be a food reviewer? Uh, you go into the restaurants. Are you either the magazine is paying for magazine it? The magazine is paying. That's they are paying. Important. Yeah, uh, very it, important. Because if you take it from restaurant then your review has no backbone
1: exactly and you know mind you I know plenty of restaurant critics who take free meals but that's not kosher okay right um so uh, you know it was very exciting for me because you know it was like a continuing every education and every time I went out for a meal I would learn something new about food I mean, you know, I learned about sushi on the job. I was living in Boston, so I remember I wrote a piece on Armenian restaurants, because Boston has the third largest Armenian population in the world. Uh, and were you would you be asking questions?
0: Afterwards. Or or okay. Yeah. Because I didn't know if you were trying to surprise them and let them know. You you would tell them, I'm coming in. No, 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 no. You
1: wouldn't tell them. Anonymous reservation, not under my name. I would meet people and often I would have them go in first. Uh, and then I would sit down, so even if I were recognized, which I wasn't very much because, you know, I was pretty new to the game. You are only making four grand a year. <laughs> pretty new to the game. Uh, but, you know, it was a wonderful experience. Um, after, I'd say probably after five years it was enough. But, you know, I still love going to restaurants. I still do a lot of research. You know, I regard every restaurant meal. Some critics are like, you know, prove me that you are not a terrible restaurant. To me, it's always cup half full, you know, I'm here, I'm excited, show me what you can do.
0: And So you go through this stage, but how does the
1: barbecue come in? Ah. So during my restaurant reviewing years, uh, I developed a cholesterol problem. Uh, that was before Lipitor. And I developed a style of cooking that was low in fat uh, called high flavor low fat cooking. And that led to it was a books. cookbook.
0: You did it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right.
1: So that was a series. Then Lipitor was invented. And so I was sort of free to uh, explore another style of cuisine. The barbecue thing, Cal, the idea, it, it was an idea. It came to me. And the idea in a simple soundbite was grilling is the world's oldest and most universal cooking method. But everywhere you go, every country, every culture, it's done differently. Wouldn't it be cool to travel around the world and document those differences? And that simple idea, I remember when it occurred to me, what the weather was like, what I was wearing where the were time you? of day. I was in Miami. I was sitting in an Adirondack chair by my front door where I used to write, put my laptop on one of the arms of the Adirondack chair. It was like a thunderbolt. You know, I, I liken it to hearing this voice, you know, from one high that said, follow the fire. Anyhow, dashed off a book proposal, uh, which normally takes a month to write. Had a response the following week. That normally takes a month, but, you know, the publisher, I think the publisher saw the commercial value of it even more than I did.
0: Was this Peter Workman? Peter Workman,
1: yeah. And, P, you know, this was back in the days when the publisher, you know, didn't have to run it by the accountants or the acquisition team or anything. He could just Well, say, his, it was his business. Yeah, I want this, I want this book. So um, there I was. The book eventually became The Barbecue Bible. Uh, I thought it would take me a year to write, maybe 100 pages, <laughs> Wound up taking four years. I spent my advance uh, in the first nine months. And then I had to write another three or four of those high-flavor, low-fat books to just be able to afford to finish the research.
0: People have no idea of what it takes to write a book, the time, the effort, no. the, the spirit you need to put into it. No. And, and not only that, but period, people go into book debt just like you did. Yeah, yeah. They run through the advance, had no idea, but they're completely in love with it. And so now you're
1: working twice as hard to support the book. That's right. Which you signed up to support you. That's right. And you have no idea if it's going to be a commercial success or not. Um, you know, and uh, I mean, the odds are against you because most books don't earn out. But happily, Barbecue Bible, it's, you know. Oh, it's uh, a great book. Yeah, it's- I... I wish I could say it was my genius, but I think uh, as much as anything, I, it was the right book at the right time. America was sort of ready to go beyond hamburgers and hot dogs. And the book came out, and uh, it was a, you know, it, it, just there was a international success from the week it came out. And so I was in barbecue. And where did that take you? Did
0: You had gone all around the world to the learn world. about all the barbecue. Yeah. That's why it yeah. took you four or five years, yeah. because... It can't be the barbecue Bible unless you really circle the globe and explain your thesis.
1: Exactly. Well, and Peter Workman, who was the founder of Workman Publishing, uh, blessed be his memory, um, had something he called category killers. And he wanted books that were... He wanted the book that was the biggest, the best, the most authoritative, the most comprehensive of any book out there. And so... Hence... Why your books are so fat? Why they're big? Yeah. Now you know. Subsequently, times change, and after twenty years of those kinds of books, you know, they came to be called doorstops, and uh, <laughs> and now I'm writing smaller books. But but, I, you,
0: but you know what? When you're going through the barbecue bible, having something that authoritative, that thick, that so many options, and you're you've got friends coming over, and you want to do something special. The ability to turn through it and have so many possibilities. I mean, I got to say, Peter Workman was right.
1: Absolutely. Well, thank you for saying that. And Peter Workman was right. That book is up about a million, uh, certainly well over a million copies. Uh, And um, Peter Workman was right about so many things. He was real visionary. So... Finished the barbecue bible, came out, you know, it was a home run. And then I thought, you know what? I'm going to write a noodle bible because let me tell you, this traveling around the world to eat is a cool Holy, thing. Hold it, a noodle bible. Yeah, now noodle bible. how did you go like?
0: Barbecue. Where did you get to noodles? Well,
1: I got there in my mind, but I started working on the proposal. This is what I was going to get. See, this is something
0: that I would have done. I would have been derailed. Mm -hmm. I I would have gotten curious about something else, Mm -hmm. and I went and went off. But you, something happened to derail your derailment.
1: It did, and that was easy as it was to write the barbecue Bible book proposal. The noodle Bible. Proposal just didn't feel like I was going anywhere. So then one night, that may or may not have been substance enhanced, I sat down <laughs> and I made a list of all the things I wanted to do with barbecue. And there were half a dozen other titles. Uh, I wanted to do TV shows. I wanted to create a website. I wanted an international publishing part uh, program. I wanted to create products. And lo and behold, I'm a great fan of lists. Big believer of uh, of lists. I have. The list of what I want to accomplish this year in my pocket. And uh, I've been working through the list ever since. So I tore up the, I didn't tore up, I deleted the uh, Noodle Bible proposal. And I thought, okay, what I really need to do is I need to write a book called How to Grill, because I was doing public speaking classes all over the country. And, and, and the whole
0: point is, the, the, the beauty of that is you can actually write a book like the Barbecue Bible and give everybody the opportunity to understand the recipe, but oh, now we got, hello. Okay. Sorry about that. We're in a hotel room at the Mandarin Oriental. And so that was the cleaning staff making sure that the room
1: was as spotless as can be. And it is a beautiful hotel and a beautiful room. My heavens, Cal, you have come up in life since your <laughs> 10 years of uh, traveling the world like a nomad.
0: Well, that's public speaking. Public. Well, I don't know if you call it public speaking or just speaking, but yeah. you get sent in nice places. It's beautiful. It's fantastic. So, So ho- hold on here, because I'm now seeing the arc of where you're going, uh, because the barbecue Bible had all of the recipes, the great recipes, mm-hmm. but you still had to know how to execute them. Exactly. And so how to grill is like the other half of that, because you need to know how to work the tools and how to understand
1: your smoker. And, and, and the techniques, yeah. So and that book, you know, I give these talks and I'd say, any questions? And women would, of course, ask smart questions. The guys would just sit there like lumps on a tree. And then afterward, (laughs) when I was packing up and getting ready to leave, they'd come over, grab my sleeve, you know. uh, my, uh, My fish always sticks to the grill. My steak is tough. My chicken catches fire. And... After three or four speaking engagements, when I heard that, I thought, you know, the light bulb went off and I thought, I had to write a book on how to grill with a thousand step-by-step photos because guys, you know, they need to see it. They need to see photos. And that book became How to Grill. And it literally has more than a thousand step-by-step photos. And I take you through every conceivable food you would want to grill from steak to brisket, to pork chops, to whole fish, fish fillets, tofu, vegetables, even desserts. Pizza. And that's a fatter book than a barbecue Bible. And that's a big book. And that book, we launched that uh, with an appearance on Oprah and that book just took off like a rocket ship. And that to date is my bestseller. That's up about 1.7 or 1.8 million. It's been translated into 17 languages. Wow! And that has led to the third thing on my list, which is an international program. Because I found, like, I travel, and all of a sudden, you know, in Italy, people would say "Buongiorno, Steve," and I had no idea why. And it turns out, either the book was translated, or one of, or one of my TV shows was translated into uh, into Italian. So. All of a sudden I had an international barbecue community. So now do you,
0: how do you feel like you, do you feel obligated to continually either move down your list or dissect your list further and say, okay, now we're going to do the barbecue sauces. Now we're going to do brisket or what, what happens after you've
1: created these blockbusters that Oprah's talking about? Well, eventually it became a business. And first of all, the beauty of barbecue is that it's a subject that is both very broad and very deep. And what I mean by that is that in the deep sense, you can take a subject like barbecue sauces, rubs, and marinades. You can explore that all over the world. And you're just writing about one kind of piece, a very essential piece, but one piece of barbecue. And you can do a very deep exploration or this new book, The Brisket Chronicles. Again, you take one cut of meat and explore it around the world and through history. But it is also very broad in the sense that everybody is interested in live fire cooking. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, and this happened to me. I mean, you can be in Azerbaijan, or you can be in South Africa, or you can be in Mexico, or you can be in Cambodia. And you will instantly form a bond with people, and instantly you're, you're no longer a tourist. You're, you're kind of a traveling, being invited into people's homes, having experiences, but, being said, now you sit down and turn the turns bit for the pig for a while. It and becomes an event. It becomes an event. It's more than an a meal. An adventure, a lifestyle. Right. Right. But I do want to say that while this is my work and I love it and I'm passionate about it and I'm still brimming with ideas, um, it's not the only piece of what I do. And about five or six years ago, I wrote my first novel, a book called Island Apart. I remember. Which I was very excited about. You read the manuscript and made some, uh, made some suggestions. Actually, I think you made a lot of suggestions <laughs> on that book. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, that was a dream fulfilled and I sort of want to, I do want to get back to it. You're writing another novel. I I've got several started, but you know, while the machine is turning with barbecue, it's, I want to keep that running as well. Um, I'm about to embark on a book that has nothing to do with barbecue. Uh, it's actually, uh, the subject of a New York Times travel story that's coming out, uh, on March 3rd. Uh, on Cicchetti, which, are, which is Italian, it's Venetian tapas, basically. And in Venice, you have this amazing institution called the baccaro, the wine bar. And you go to these wine bars, and they've got 15, 20, 30 different kinds of bite-sized, unbelievably delicious tapas. And you can make a meal on that and you drink inexpensive local wine. And it's one of the few places in Venice where you can actually meet a lot of locals because Bakary, every, every place is invaded by tourism and tourists, but Bakary, you know, this, the Venetians still go to Bakary and hang out at baccaries. So um, I, it's funny, Italy has like come to occupy- I can see. Yeah. Mo-
0: so you, it, what's happening to get to my original question is this is taking you out in different areas right. and your mind is constantly maintaining its curiosity right uh, because perhaps if you had just stuck strictly to barbecue it it might have boxed you in
1: yeah uh, and uh, i mean you know i guess the day th- there are many different sort of subspecialties of barbecue that i find fascinating and that deserve being written about so after How to Grill, I wrote a book on, uh, on ribs, just just about ribs. And then I wrote a book called BBQ USA, which is solely about barbecue in America. And that was more smoking than grill. I love that one, yeah. And then more recently, I did a book called Project Smoke, which was right. solely about smoking. But the premise of that book and what made it so so fantastically interesting to write about is that all barbecue is smoked, right? But not all smoked foods are barbecue. Well, I was
0: just gonna ask you because uh, obviously I've have many smokers and barbecues in the, in the backyard because of you. Yeah, yeah. But can you
1: explain to people the difference between like grilling Absol- and smoking? Okay, great. So grilling is when you cook small, tender, or quick cooking pieces of food directly over a hot fire. And the operative words here are direct and hot. So you grill a steak, you grill a burger, you grill uh, a fish steak, you grill a chicken breast, you grill corn on the cob or a mushroom. Okay? Quick. Uh, true barbecue is an indirect process, meaning your food is next to, not directly over the fire. The temperature is much lower, uh, the cooking time is much longer often, usually you're cooking foods that aren't particularly tender. I mean, a brisket is, you know, it's one of the toughest cuts of meat there is, and you might cook a brisket for 12 or 14 hours. So true barbecue, it's what's practiced in Texas, it's what's practiced in the American South, and Kansas City. Memphis. Gril- yeah. Memphis. Grilling, I would say, of all the live fire cooking events that are happening on any particular day, probably 90% of those events are grilling. It's what most of the world does. It's like a hamburger
0: with a spatula. Yeah,
1: or a satay or, um, you know, a chuletan in Spain, a a, a rib chop or mechouille or a brochette in France or, uh, you know, tandoori in India. They're all quick cooked over a hot fire. True barbecue is really only done in, well, traditionally in the United States and Mexico, although now American barbecue is... Europeans are crazy about American barbecue. They have barbecue festivals. They have barbecue teams. Uh, there's a German company that builds the spitting image of a Texas style offset barrel smoker. So that's the basic difference.
0: You know what? The competitions are some of my favorite parts of barbecue, uh, because they, they're competitions, but it's, Basically, a bunch of bubba's getting
1: <laughs> together side by side and having a good time. You bet. But deadly serious about what they're doing. Absolutely. And there's a lot of misdirection. Uh, you know, they want to win because the prizes, you know, they're big prizes. And I think uh, at Memphis in May, it's a $10,000 purse for the, for, uh, the grand champion. Now, of course, they're spending a lot more money than ten thousand dollars between there, just getting rig there and
0: getting there and yeah, everything. because people should understand that just getting these giant smokers to the site; I mean, these smokers are massive, and they it's cost just,
1: a lot of money themselves. And a lot of them are hand
0: welded. Yeah, we're, we're talking like uh, about something that would be the size of a, a, a king bed. In, in easily. Place, easily easily yeah uh, because if you are basically barbecuing a pig right and that pig is fully splayed out yeah
1: that's gonna take some space you need a lot of space for that absolutely and it, you know it's a different style of cooking but um, I, I would say that live fire cooking you know either grilling or barbecue, Uh, one of the constants of world cuisine, right? I mean, the only places traditionally where you didn't find it much was Scandinavia, the UK. Uh, The French do it, but don't talk about it. China, um, there's some grilling, especially in the Muslim-speaking parts of uh, China, but it's pretty universal and pretty different. You know, in the Starbucks age or the Burger King age when, you know, some of our foods are so monotonely universal, it's really where cultural uh, differences still manifest.
0: So you're at this point now where you are like Mr. Barbecue, and I imagine you're being called to judge at all these conferences and competitions. Uh, Is the barbecue still tasty as it was when you started, or? It's even better.
1: It's even better. It's even better. And it's even better because people are more knowledgeable uh, about the technique, about the chemistry, about the physics of barbecue. I mean, even something like brisket, okay, which we all love. And when I got started, the only place you could get decent brisket was in Texas. And now there's a brisket renaissance and you can find brisket in Brooklyn, New York. You can find brisket in Los Angeles, California. That's every bit as good as anything you can get in Uh, in Texas. And not only that, but the meats are better, you know, kind of historically in America, barbecue was kind of created or at least harnessed to take inexpensive cuts of meat, you know, to the extent that some of it was perfected by slaves and then later freed slaves. They were getting, they weren't eating high off the hog. They were eating the cheapest cuts for the hog. So when you were
0: going to Arthur Bryan's in Kansas city,
1: uh, they were making the best out of- Pretty cheap commodity beef. Yeah. But what's happened now is the new guys like Billy Durney and Aaron Frank, Billy, Billy Durney in uh, Red Hook, Brooklyn at Hometown Barbecue, Aaron Frank. They're using
0: the best cuts.
1: They're using prime brisket. They're, you know, there's a the couple in um, Asheville, North Carolina that's using grass-fed brisket that's extraordinary. Wow. And people are using heirloom and heritage varieties of pork for their ribs and pork shoulders. Um, you, you know, you're finding organic barbecue. So the knowledge... The cookers are getting better. The understanding of the physics and chemistry is getting better. The actual ingredients are getting better. So that's, you know, we're definitely eating better now than we did. So you never get tired of barbecue? Um, I never get tired of it. How many days a year do you eat barbecue? Well... Not as much as you would think. And let's, you know, let's my- um- Only 361. No, no, no. My umbra, you know, my specialty <laughs> is really grilling as much as barbecue. But how many days a year do I eat live fire food? When I'm on book tour, I do. When I'm on a research trip, I do. I mean, you know, half the year. Uh, whenever we cook at home, we grill um, pretty much. But you know, I'm also, I'm fascinated by, if there's a new restaurant that's, you know, doing molecular cuisine, I'm fascinated by that. But I should, you know, I should also say, like, there's a whole, when I have leisure time, which is not very often, I do something totally different that has nothing to do with cooking or barbecue. What do you do? Well, Don't tell me noodles. No, my passion is French literature. And cause I was a French lit major. Right. So I read novels in French, I mean, and I'm in a French book club here in um, French... How you know, do your
0: barbecue friends react to that? All the bubbas in Memphis and Kansas City.
1: You know, I think it's a part of my life that they really don't know. They don't know I they know. I've sort of been called the intellectual of barbecue. And they know that I'm very curious about the history and anthropology of barbecue and the science of barbecue. And the, my books are not recipe books. You know, they're storytelling books. I always say that... The recipes in my book, I, I write the recipes to sell the books, but what really interests me about the books is the history, the anthropology, the culture. And is there enough about
0: barbecue to keep you going past the century mark, which I hope you're going to get to?
1: Well, um. Uh- so, Brisket Chronicles just came out. And Brisket Chronicles is a bit of a departure. Um, it didn't just come out. I'm looking this at your This is going to be it's released in galleys. May
0: 2019. Yeah.
1: yeah. And you've got the bound galleys, which is actually very cool, because I have not seen this yet. I only saw the galleys on my computer. Oh, my screen. goodness. I'm going
0: to have to give it to you. Your so own it, book to you.
1: No, no, no. So, what they do is, uh, for your listeners who may not know what a galley is, is uh, they take the typeset, and then they run it off, and they make color photocopies and of it, it looks like a book bind it into a book and this is sent to reviewers and it's sent to booksellers so people can sort of see you know what the book is going to look like and it looks beautiful so i would say half the book is about barbecue but the other half of the book is about other manifestations of brisket right like pastrami so that's there's a chapter on cured briskets pastrami is a cured brisket that's smoked irish corned beef is a cured brisket that's not smoked Montreal smoked meat is pastrami that took a wrong turn and is dry rubbed instead of brined. (laughs) Uh, There's an Irish cured brisket. And then we get to braised brisket, which is my first exposure to brisket. Uh, Growing up Jewish, you know, that was the holiday, the the, the braised brisket, braised with dried fruits and Manischewitz was, you know, that was what you ate on the holidays. That was a holiday. Yeah. Yeah. And then we get to brisket around the world. So in... Cuba, they have something called vaca frita, fried cow, which is braised briskets that's shredded and deep fried with onions and garlic. Amazing. In the Spanish, uh, Central America, they do something called ropa vieja, or oh, clothes, okay? Yeah, that's shredded great. braised brisket yeah, with great. peppers. Yeah. Uh, in Italy, uh, they boil it with vegetables and make uh, bolito misto. And perhaps my favorite manifestation of brisket is in Vietnam where they boil it for 16 hours, thinly slice it and serve it in beef noodle soup that's sweetened with brown sugar and salted with fish sauce and aromatized with uh, cinnamon sticks and star anise and ginger. What's and the name of that? Pho. they call it. Pho? Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I'm often seen.
1: Yeah. So, you know, so that to me, that, that was like, that's an iconic meat. And tracing that around the world. That was really interesting. The book I'm working on now is a book on meatless barbecue. Uh, You know, that I know a few people in Texas and Kansas City are gonna hate me for until they actually sit down and look at it. But, you know, there's such interest in plant based cooking and plant based food now. And if you travel around the world's barbecue trail, uh, there are great traditions of meatless cooking. In India, I mean, you know, uh, 300 million vegetarians, vegetarians oh, in India. Oh, man. And they do your, amazing work. Your grilling.
0: plant-based barbecue book is going to be go big time in India.
1: Yeah. and uh, A Japan, billion people. You know, Japan. Um, I mean, grilled tofu with miso barbecue sauce is like, that's their national hot dog, you know? And in the United States, too. Uh, you've read about Impossible Burger and all of these companies. I love
0: Impossible Burger.
1: Yeah, so... You know... It's uh, amazing. They make it seem like the
0: the, the blood of yeah, the cow is right. coming out of it. Yeah. I guess they do it with beets.
1: Well, one version is to do it with beet juice and another, they use a, a substance called heme. Um, and that brings us to sort of a big philosophical question about meatless grilling, which I'm going to address in the book when I really get into the book. And that is, do you want your grilled vegetables to celebrate the uniqueness of grilled vegetables, or do you want somehow to sort of create meat-like foods that don't have meat in them? And I think there's room for both. You know
0: what, This this is an amazing question because a lot of times, living in California, I go to these vegan restaurants and they're constantly trying to remake a dish and they label the dish by its name, which drives me nuts Mm -hmm. because it ain't lasagna. Right. Call it something else. Right, 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 right. Yeah. And I I think it shouldn't have to try and copy food with meat in it.
1: Yes, I mostly agree with that. However, if you were an investor and Impossible Burger was going public, um, that would be a company to buy because... I think it's going to be hugely, hugely successful. That company. I mean, in my to my view, there is room for both. There's a fantastic restaurant in Philadelphia um, that's called Veg, and they have a sister place that's called Whizkid, uh, where they specialize in meatless Philly cheesesteaks. And they're made with uh, Satan and uh, and mushrooms, and the cheese is like some kind of almond puree, and it's and better. It's no. fantastic. It is better than 95% of the cheesesteaks in Philadelphia. No. Yeah, that's it's astonishing. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I remember you and I had dinner uh, at a place called Twa Mec in uh, Los oh, Angeles. Oh, yes, yes. And there was a lot of that sort of playful crossing of boundaries with food that was uh, vegetables that were smoked and uh, cured and smoked and made to taste like meat. And... Um, and and that part, you know, that to me is fascinating. You know what? It's all I, I fascinating. Ha, look, to me. I love when they do it. Yeah, it's just what, what.
0: Here's the problem, when and and look, there's a restaurant in Los Angeles called Crossroads, mm-hmm. where they make crab cakes out of heart of palm. If I blindfolded you, even you, with your palate, you would think, is that. Crab is that crab cakes?
1: Well, huh? well, that's what I'm talking about. And if you had this Philly cheesesteak, right, I uh, would think Wizkid, the same way. I would think the same. You would thing. think, holy cow, this is like you know, because a lot of the Philly cheesesteak places they're cheap cuts of meat and they're you know it's not put together with love. And um, but but this, but the, but you don't want it to be called a crab I, cake. I just think that when you call it, well,
0: here's the problem. At Crossroads, they can call it a crab cake because. They could fool me. But if you can't fool me, then please don't try because I'm like, what happens is I look at the menu and I say, oh, they got lasagna. And then it comes out and it it has nothing to do with lasagna. So please, if somebody out there is in the restaurant space, in the vegan restaurant space, just make sure that you are dead spot on if you're going to take the name of a dish we all <laughs> love and know. Otherwise, you're just disappointing me, right. and then I'm not going to want to come back. Right.
1: Or at least put quotation marks around it.
0: At le- yeah, yeah. At the at the very least. But even then, if if I'm seeing a dish that I like, I expect it to be replicated. Right in a way that's gonna make me like it.
1: Right, I, I I, hear you, I understand you. You know, and it, it's funny because you think about, I mean, I'm thinking about writing this uh, meatless grill book and um, a, and yet we are at a very, we, we have entered almost immediately into a very deep philosophical question, right? So I, you know, you are, want... we, uh, are, are we celebrating, are we trying ersatz grilling or are we trying to celebrate plant foods for their unique qualities? I think th-
0: this book has the potential to be
1: very big in
0: certain parts of America. Okay. I think in in Kansas City, <laughs> they, may not let, they may not let you in for a little while until your next barbecue book.
1: Well it's fun, it's funny you should mention that. I do a big event in Kansas City every year at a wonderful barbecue store called Smoke and Fire. And you know, I'm well I'm on the road, I do some market research and I mentioned this new book and everybody groaned and uh, you know, I thought I was gonna get booed out of that room. But then afterwards, a dozen people came up to me and said, you know, that's really a pretty cool idea. And I'm trying to eat less meat and I wanna do more with vegetables. And, and you know, I
0: was in Iowa and I passed a pub and outside there was a sign celebrating kombucha. Mm. And I said, Iowa. "Man, man, if they're trying to lure people in with kombucha in Iowa, we better be paying attention. You bet. Because it's pretty obvious that plant-based is a healthy solution.
1: Absolutely. And healthy for the planet too. And, and if we
0: can make it taste as good as we're accustomed to tasting our other foods, I don't see why people wouldn't go that way.
1: I, I've really encouraged at least you know at least part of the time. I mean, you know, I've, I'm always mindful of uh, Julia Child's great advice, you know, which is moderation in all things. Um, but I guess for me, what's really fascinating about the subject is the incredible creativity. Like you think about cooking a steak, it takes expertise, but it doesn't really take much creativity. In fact, the whole nature of a great steak is you don't want creativity, right? You want it to be a great steak but with vegetarian cooking vegan cooking uh, vegan grilling that does take an enormous amount of creativity in order to make something taste amazing
0: yeah i mean and, these people are artists yeah, that, and have, so there's, that are doing it yeah
1: so when I'm, I'm actually i'm headed out to california in 2 months so we will go to one of you'll pick the restaurant for us
0: okay cuz we I also have to get a few. To,
1: to Trudy's underground too so so
0: let me just ask one quick question for people who want the traditional. Mm-hmm. What are the five best, this could get you in a lot of trouble, the five most interesting barbecue places in America that people should try? Oof.
1: Well, you were very right that it's going to uh, get me in a lot of trouble. It. But here, here's the thing, you can,
0: you can basically hopscotch from city to city, and also that you're going to find different specialties in different places. Mm-hmm. So it may not upset that many people, but
1: if it does, I'm sorry. Okay. So and we're talking about barbecue, right? Barbecue. We're talking about yeah. low, slow, That's cooked, right. smoky foods. You got it. All right. I'm going to go all new school with this, right. all right? All new school. So first yeah, of no all- No rendezvous? No, first of all... No rendezvous. We'll get to it, we'll get to it. Oh, so, man. Uh, first of all, you've got to go, you got to make your pilgrimage to Franklin's Barbecue in Austin, Texas. All right. Uh, where you will wait in line for roughly three hours in order to eat uh, the most pitch-perfect brisket that ever existed. And every time I go, uh, I think could, could, you know it's got to have slipped a little bit, and every time I go, it's just as amazing as ever. If you can't stomach that line, you know, you might go to Law Barbecue in Austin. You might go to Micklethwaite's in Austin. There's, you know, there's a lot of great, you know, the real action for the most part is in uh, food, food trucks and trailers, but that's one. You've got to go to Hometown Barbecue in Red Hook, Brooklyn, New York, Billy Durney, and there you have to try the Monster Beef Ribs, uh, as well as the brisket. He's got Pitch perfect. Everything he does is really pitch perfect. So so far, I haven't heard Memphis.
0: I haven't heard Kansas City. Man, you're gonna get a lot of people. I'm well, to solve Carolina. That, okay, let us
1: say that everybody knows those places already. So I'm not doing anyone. So you're to s- not gonna recommend a place from Kansas City. Uh, we'll get to it. We'll All get right, to okay, it. Okay. So that's two. All right. So that's two. So number three. Uh, is a restaurant that just opened in Los Angeles. It's called Slab. And uh, it's an Israeli entrepreneur who got the barbecue bug and uh, ran a catering service called a sort of pop up catering service called uh, Trudy's Underground. And it's just opened Slab. And it is fantastic beyond belief. Number four is in Chicago. Uh, it's called Green Street Meats. And I could also name Smoke, S-M-O-Q-U-E, in Chicago, which is sort of on the way to the airport. I always stop there. But Green Street Meat, uh, Texas-style barbecue. But what's interesting about them, we, we get into pastrami there. I mean, they do pastrami. So does Billy Derney. But, you know, remember, pastrami, it was a Jewish deli specialty. Uh, it's brisket that is first brined in what they call a pickle. It's a salt solution with spices, garlic, lots of garlic, Then it's smoked, then it's rubbed, sorry, it's rubbed with pepper and coriander. Then it's smoked, and last of all, it's steamed. Okay, so four four step process. And I'm naming uh, Green Street because they do an awesome pastrami there. Number five. Man, number five, number five. Man, there's a lot of
0: places out there. Okay,
1: this is. Wondering if they're gonna make the cut. Okay, so would I name Joe's in Kansas City? If you're in Kansas City, you certainly should go there. Uh, would I name the rendezvous in Memphis? If you're Memphis, you certainly should go there because that was the birthplace of the dry rib. That is right. served with a thick crust of spices. But uh, that was the
0: first time I've ever tasted that.
1: Right? No barbecue. I mean, no uh, barbecue sauce on it. Barbecue right. sauce on the side, maybe. Uh, would I name, where else would I, uh, could I send what you About them? North Carolina. Well, North Carolina, I mean, Honey Monks in Lexington uh, for pulled pork, uh, Allen and Son in, uh, in Chapel Hill uh, certainly ought to be named, uh, that's a big one. Uh, Skylight in Aden uh, certainly ought to be named. But those, you know, those are kind of old school places. Um, so what am I gonna give you? uh what am I gonna give you for number five? Uh, not gonna give you any place in Miami because frankly, we don't do good barbecue in Miami. Well, we're not supposed you, you to might, really. you
0: might do your house.
1: Well, my house, but I don't want to schlep you there. Uh, well, that might
0: get you out of trouble.
1: That might get you you know, maybe we island hop. I mean, uh, maybe I send you to Boston Beach, Jamaica, where you can uh sort of a dozen guys. Uh, are doing jerk, traditional jerk, which is uh, was really probably the model of the original barbecue, the barbacoa that the Spanish explorers discovered on the island of Hispaniola when they came in the early 1500s. And uh, in Boston Beach, so it'd be a whole hog. It's marinated in this fiery slather of scotch bonnet chilies, allspice, nutmeg, scallions, rum, soy sauce. And then smoke-roasted, slow-roasted over pimento wood, uh, allspice wood. So Man, there you know go. What,
0: I can't take it anymore. Okay, we're, we're gonna hungry, huh? go, We're going to have to go get <laughs> we're some gonna have lunch, get, We're <laughs> going to have to eat. Yeah, yeah, really. <laughs> Let's go get some lunch. And I want to thank the Mandarin Oriental for allotting us this extra time. Uh, that was really very nice and cordial of them.
1: And they have a great, two great restaurants here. They have a great uh, Peruvian restaurant called, I think it's called uh, Il Mar. And, I uh, Lamar. Lamar. La that's right, Lamar. I'm yeah. thinking of Italian. And then they've got, uh, I, I guess we'll go to their cafe today, which is uh, also very good. Well, it's
0: time to eat, Stephen.
1: You got it. <laughs> Buon appetito. Okay, Thank you
0: so much. It's great to be with you. It's just every time I'm with you, I just have images of all the great meals we've had together. And
1: let's go get another. Well, thank you, Cal. You know, I listen to your podcasts religiously. They're kind of my workout listening to. And uh, it's really uh, exciting and an honor to be part of one of them. So thank you.
0: All right. We'll take it to the next level at lunch. Cheers. Cheers. That about wraps it up. want to thank Tim Ferriss for pushing me to do this podcast. I'll be lifting a stein of beer to Tim in Munich at my storytelling workshop, July 5th and 6th. Go to kokrea.com, c-o-k-r-e-a.com, to see how you can lift a glass with me. I also want to thank my pals at Sportique, Matt and Jason for getting out that first run of Big Question Comfy Teas. It's been so great getting to know you, Matt and Jason, and introducing listeners of Big Questions to Sportique. I'm telling you, I've heard stories of a guy getting through a divorce in Sportique sweatpants, guys getting through chemotherapy in their Sportique sweatpants, people taking Sportique t-shirts thousands of miles so that orphans in Nepal can know the meaning of the word comfort. I'm wearing my Sportique hoodie as I speak these words. And I invite you to see why Sportique hoodies, sweatpants, and tees make me so comfortable. Go to sportique.com. That's S-P-O-R-T-I-Q-E dot com. Find out for yourself. If you use the offer code CAL, you'll get a 20% discount. want to thank my friends at WeWork for getting behind this podcast. I'll be able to stop in a WeWork in Berlin and Munich when I'm in Germany this week which tells you that my WeWork Global Access Pass gives me a home away from home wherever I go. If you need office space, go to www.we.co/cal and you'll get a 20% discount by using that code. You never know who you're going to meet at WeWork, what great ideas might come to you, and where they may take you. So check out WeWork. Maybe I'll see you there. I want to thank all of you who signed up to get early access to air quotes. If you missed the air quote podcast with Sam Rukeyser and David Liu, check it out, and you'll be able to save and spread all the great moments you hear on Big Questions and other podcasts. It's under the title "Paying It Forward" to Tim Ferris. Always seems to come back to Tim Ferris. Hope you're having some great barbecue over the Fourth, Tim. And I hope the sun is shining on all of you, wherever you listen to Big Questions.
1: Cheers!